How are the 9-11 attacks still affecting the response to the COVID-19 virus? How did Wall Street and the Federal Reserve benefit from the manipulation of the crisis of 2001 to furnish measures in the new crisis of 2020? Does 9-11 continue to affect our lives now that the war on terrorism has been replaced by a new Cold War with Russia? What legal and political activities are present today to continue the battle for 9-11 truth? Today on the Global Research News Hour, we look back on the 19 years following the devastating attacks of September 11th and probe some disturbing reviews of how the narrative continues to affect the political course today. We first speak with Professor Anthony Hall about the links between 9-11 and the current COVID crisis. Then, we'll bring Graham McQueen into the conversation to talk about how the war on terrorism has continuity into the current Cold Wars in Russia and China. Finally, Richard Gage, AIA, drops by to update listeners on the efforts to bring us closer to 9-11 truth and 9-11 justice. On this week's program, Why 9-11 Matters 19 Years Later, conversations with Anthony Hall, Graham McQueen, and Richard Gage, AIA. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 11, 2020. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. part of an effort to hold U.S. officials to account for war crimes, Stafford Smith had a teasing pointer on the implications for WikiLeaks. Quote, Anyone can be sanctioned who is seeking to assist in an investigation which could lead to ICC, or International Criminal Court, investigation, which is what WikiLeaks does, unquote. It was a pointed reminder that Assange's defense team could well fall within the remit of U.S. sanctions currently directed at the ICC by the Trump administration. In his overall assessment, Stafford Smith suggested that, quote, the power and value of WikiLeaks disclosures around Iraq and Afghanistan can scarcely be understated and are of key importance to evidence war crimes and human rights violations by the U.S. and its allies, unquote. That comes from the article, Assange's Second Day at the Old Bailey, Torture, Drone Strikes, and Journalism, by Binoy Campmark, posted September 9th. If you asked me to sum up today in a word, that word would undoubtedly be railroaded. 
It was all about pushing through the hearing as quickly as possible and with as little public exposure as possible to what is happening. Access denied, adjournment denied, exposition of defense evidence denied, removal of superseding indictment charges denied. The prosecution was plainly failing in that week back in Woolwich in February, which seems like an age ago. It has now been given a new boost. That comes from the article, Your Man in the Public Gallery, the Assange Hearing Day 6, by Craig Murray, posted September 9th, originally posted on the author's blog. Kenneth Roth, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, made the situation clear, quote, It is dangerous to suggest that these actions are somehow criminal rather than steps routinely taken by investigative journalists who communicate with confidential sources to receive classified information of public importance, unquote. To criminalize the protection of sources will stop whistleblowers coming forward and will put journalists and publishers at risk. We need look no further than Manning's own leaks to realize what a loss this would be. It was Manning who provided the so-called Iraq and Afghanistan war logs published by WikiLeaks in 2010 and revealed the atrocity of U.S. helicopter gunmen laughing as they shot at and killed unarmed civilians in Iraq. That comes from the article, Julian Assange, future generations of journalists will not forgive us if we do not fight extradition, by Peter Oborn, published September 7th, originally published at Press Gazette. Today, the land that gave us Magna Carta, Great Britain, is distinguished by the abandonment of its own sovereignty in allowing a malign foreign power to manipulate justice and by the vicious psychological torture of Julian, a form of torture, as Nils Melzer, the UN expert, has pointed out, that was refined by the Nazis because it was most effective in breaking its victims. Every time I have visited Assange in Belmarsh Prison, I have seen the effects of this torture. When I last saw him, he had lost more than 10 kilos in weight. His arms had no muscle. Incredibly, his wicked sense of humor was intact. Australia has displayed only a cringing cowardice as its government has secretly conspired against its own citizen who ought to be celebrated as a national hero. That comes from the article, The Stalinist Trial of Julian Assange, by John Pilger, posted September 7th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. 9-11 was the event that was not only horrific, it changed the way America viewed its security and launched them into a bold new war on terrorism. The changes were widespread initially, although m almost two decades later, the fight on terrorism seems to be not as popular as it was. Does the 9-11 narrative still function? 
now that Putin, climate change, and racism seems to resonate a little bit more? Professor Anthony Hall believes that the use of 9-11 to create a repertoire of political trickery that is being put in place to bolster the current COVID craze. Professor Anthony James Hall is editor-in-chief of the American Herald Tribune and Professor Emeritus of Globalization Studies and Liberal Education at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta. I brought him on the show recently to dig seriously into this concept. Yeah, well, let's remember that the most dramatic chapter of 9-11, which is what happened in Manhattan with the Twin Towers, with the Triple Towers, with the Third Tower coming down, I mean, this happened in the financial district of Manhattan. This was a Wall Street operation. Was it a Wall Street operation or were they just casual victims? Um, I I think Wall Street uh, was quite involved in the prelude to 9-11 and certainly in what happened during 9-11 and what happened after 9-11 and the militarization, uh, which, you know, involves banking and obtaining funds and directing it in a certain way. All of this happens on Wall Street. So uh, let's think about, for instance, uh, the event itself, the trading that took place in Wall Street markets, where interests seemed to have knowledge of what companies were going to be negatively affected. And then they purchased large quantities of uh, put options on these companies that were going to have a falling price. There was also a... uh, uh, a, a, a big purchase of $5 billion um, treasury notes, which uh, with five-year uh, time period, which apparently is the optimal uh, insurance in a time of crisis when you don't know what the market's going to do. Uh, so this happened uh, prior to uh, uh, 9-11. What happened prior to 9-11 was also uh, Donald Rumsfeld announcing that there was 2.3 trillion missing from the Pentagon budget. Uh, In the article I wrote, I I take note of the fact that by 2015, this missing 2.3 trillion had expanded to 21 trillion missing off the books. So this is quite extraordinary that uh, the government simply cannot account now for, and this is in 2015 dollars, 21 trillion missing. Well, that 21 trillion is associated with the Department of Defense, with the Pentagon, and they don't have auditing like other departments. So uh, there's obviously a tremendous amount of a funny business taking place. Now on 9-11 itself, the uh, Federal Reserve, which is uh, based, well, one branch of the Federal Reserve is based in New York. It's kind of a complex setup. But there is in Washington a federally charted corporation, the Federal Reserve. But the Federal Reserve is actually composed of 12 regional branches in the United States. And one of those branches is in New York, on Maiden Lane in New York. And uh, obviously it's it's a giant compared to the other regional banks, which was kind of a political deal in 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created to keep the other regions kind of in line. Uh, So the Federal Reserve on the day of 9-11 
uh, injected $100 billion into uh, like the repo markets and uh, for several days injected $100 billion every day into those markets. One of the things one discovers when you look at the information on all of this is that you don't know where this money ends up. The Federal Reserve doesn't report in the way uh, other uh, financial entities and corporations do. Uh, the Federal Reserve has the power to create new money, this big power of government to create new money. And then if they don't get paid back the money, then they can uh, uh, charge it to the taxpayer. Um, or uh, this money is created and interest is charged to, to the taxpayer. So 9-11 uh, kind of created a situation where the Federal Reserve uh, started to take uh, new uh, liberties. And uh, of course the Federal Reserve, these 12 corporations are all owned by uh, individual banks. So if you go onto the censored internet these days and try to figure out, well, I heard the Federal Reserve is owned by private bankers. The first thing they'll do is show you 10 sites and say, oh no, no, it's a federal corporation. It's based in Washington. The chairman is appointed by the president and all of that. But the deep, deeper story is these 12 regional banks are owned by banks. And, uh, and, and so uh, they can give themselves tremendous payouts uh, based on the fact that they control this Federal Reserve Bank of New York in particular, all the big companies like JP Morgan Chase, like Citigroup, like Goldman Sachs, they're all shareholders. They own the means of creating currency. And, and so this is a, a, you know, a, a very powerful essence of what happened. Now on 9-11, you think you know, suddenly, oh, Muslims, Arabs, terrorists. Uh, it also is at the beginning of a phase where China really got a kind of a license to uh, push ahead with their financial plans and uh, sort of overtake the United States uh, in a lot of industries, in a lot of companies. Uh, and, you know, all the while we're being pointed at Muslims, uh, Arabs, terrorists, our mental environment is being toxified. Uh, Wall Street is making all kinds of deals, benefiting enormously in deindustrializing the United States, uh, putting that uh, industrial capacity into China. Um, <clears throat> so uh, there's all kinds of implications of 9-11. 9-11 begins a process, I think what we're experiencing now with, we could call it COVID-19, but it's really the lockdowns that are doing the damage the lockdowns which cause people to be depressed, to be suicidal, to you know, act on their addictions and this kind of thing. The uh, negative health effects from the lockdowns are already far in excess of what we get with the uh, you know, deaths from COVID-19. And it's pretty much clear now there's something very scammy about the whole thing. For instance, when the CDC just a few days ago says, well, those deaths that we reported in the United States, those uh, 150,000, 180,000 deaths, only 6% of those deaths were from uh, COVID-19 uh, infection. 
The other 94% people had comorbidities. Uh, they had an, on an average 2.6 uh, other um, health problems uh, that may very well have killed them. Uh, we don't really have an accurate system for testing COVID-19. So one of my arguments in the paper is that really the, the, the public health is a kind of pretext for shutting us down, for locking us down. The destruction of the economy is not inadvertent. It's being done with an objective, an objective that we could put a lot of responsibility with the Federal Reserve uh, in New York, which isn't accountable, which isn't transparent, uh, which funds wars. There's no reason to think that this funding of wars hasn't in the 21st century after 9-11 been a big factor in funding wars for Israel conducted through the military muscle of the United States. I'm wondering also about uh, insights into uh, more clandestine uh, in, into activities that uh, they're being placed off the books, uh, which is benefiting yeah. from the COVID crisis. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I would like to go into that, but let me just underline that the sort of core uh, analysis, I think that we have to consider is that uh, it's been shown after 9-11, it was demonstrated that emergency measures uh, can be very effective in uh, taking control of populations and doing away what, with like the nasty business of a habeas corpus, like having to prove somebody is guilty before you kill them. You know, since 9-11, um, many people are just assassinated, killed, droned, um, uh, and, uh, or tortured, uh, incarcerated. There's no need to prove anything. You just say, well, I suspect this might be a terrorist. Uh, it, this uh, emergency measures centralizes power, especially in the executive branch. It thus uh, kind of uh, de disempowers the legislative branches of government. And so the uh, response to 9-11, and the, we know it's a, a phony account of 9-11 that we were given, but the response to 9-11 starts to build this momentum of using emergency measures provisions, which we're told are going to be temporary, but they never turn out to be temporary. In fact, they're built up over time. So, uh, so uh, along the, the journey from 9-11 to COVID-19 and the lockdowns is this uh, bailout in 20, 2009. Wall Street with uh, so-called deregulation, the end of the Glass-Steagall Act, the fact that you can put together all kinds of uh, financial institutions, insurance institutions into kind of big supermarkets of financial service agencies. And uh, one thing that took over these big banks, especially in New York and their Wall Street international connections. One thing that uh, took them over is derivatives and explaining what derivatives that we could use all the time on that, but it's a particularly risky, uh, toxic form of speculation. There was 1.4 quadrillion, a thousand trillion devoted at the time of the bailouts to derivatives, those derivatives are still on Wall Street. So to bail out the institutions who were in trouble on Wall Street, uh, I've done the research on a, a website called 
Wall Street on parade, and they often announced that 29 trillion was handed over to Wall Street to uh, supposedly rectify the economy. And that's the model uh, that is now in place. The uh, BlackRock, a big Wall Street company called BlackRock, you know, in my book, Earth into Property, I, I, I found in the concluding chapter, the research for the concluding chapter, they administered the bailouts of 2008. They are now administering the bailouts now, uh, the, the same company. And they actually had a meeting uh, at um, Jackson Hole in Wyoming in, in August of 2019, predicting a financial debacle and how uh, that financial debacle would be met. So we didn't have the official COVID-19 crisis until you know, 2020, but they were meeting in Jackson Hole in August of 2019. And lo and behold, uh, they're speaking to central bankers and they are now in charge of this system of, of bailouts. The BlackRock company emerges from Blackstone which is very much, uh, you know, Kissinger is involved, the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, Peter Peterson, who was the founding chair of the, you know, agency at the root of Black Rock, which is called Black Stone, he worked very closely with uh, Larry Silverstein in the leases for the Twin Towers in purchasing the mortgage uh, for uh, building number seven. So uh, this company, BlackRock, uh, that is, you know, representing Wall Street with the Treasury uh, and the formal Federal Reserve, and then the third party in this uh, um, group doing the CARES Act, it starts with the CARES Act, is, is BlackRock. They're rooted in a company that was very much involved in the financial uh, structure of the 9-11 lies and crimes. So how, how uh, old is BlackRock? How, how far back does it go? It goes uh, in the late uh, 1980s. Uh, Larry Fink, Lawrence Fink, he worked with Schwartzman and Peterson and uh, they were for a time part of Blackstone and then uh, BlackRock broke away. Yeah. BlackRock con controls uh, 30 trillion in, a, in assets. That's, it doesn't own all of that. It owns about 7 trillion, but it manages pension funds and things. And it has a, a tremendous um, a database. Aladdin is the company. So it, it's an indicator how this artificial intelligence is, you know, being commandeered by uh, Wall Street. And of course, a bit, you know, as I would argue, a big part of the effort to crash the economy and you know get us lined up so we think these vaccines are going to be the only remedy to take us back to quote unquote normal uh, but within these vaccines we can anticipate maybe not the first one but the concept of compulsory vaccines which is new that there will be nanotechnology in those vaccines which make us ai compatible let's call it biotechnological nano nanoparticles, you know, for the cashless societies to get our immunity passports, to get our uh, identification in line so we can go on a plane or take a course. You know, maybe if we don't take the vaccine, well, we can 
not take the vaccine, but you're going to have to stay at home. You can never go to a concert, can never have a job. You can, you know, maybe you can't even uh, buy and sell food because uh, they're going to have access internally to our, you know, they'll be able to sh shut, shut off the banking system for individuals that are not complying. Uh, so, so uh, without uh, 9-11, it would be inconceivable that the conditions would be such that they could do what they're doing on us now. And I do feel that this is uh, a conspiratorial plot. I do feel this isn't happenstance. This is a pandemic. Uh, you know, the, the Bill Gates, the Fauci's, University of North Carolina, Ralph Barrick, uh, you know, that the, uh, Fauci has been uh, sort of orchestrating the Wuhan Virology Lab and the University of North Carolina lab to be working on bioweapons. You know, one of the things you discover from this whole uh, affair is that the work on bioweapons and vaccines is very closely integrated. Like at the level four pathogen lab in Winnipeg, where you are, you know, this was very publicized, that this was a big part of what led up to uh, um, the uh, events of 2020, uh, the, uh, you know, the people working in this Winnipeg lab sent off a package of viruses to uh, Wuhan famously. Uh, you know, we get no explanation about any of this as Canadians from the RCMP, from the University of Manitoba, from the <laughs> uh, biopathogen uh, lab in, in, in Winnipeg. You know, Canada has really become a backwater. Canada is particularly, uh, you know, behind the eight ball. There's not much going on in this country. There, you know, what about the Chinese Belt and Road Project? I mean, it's a pretty brain dead place. Uh, you know, fortunately, some of us have access to, you know, broader um, forms of discussion. What's wrong with Canada these yeah. days? Yeah, um, there was a financial crisis on on the horizon, and, and things were in pretty bad shape. Um, is the crisis either by uh, by plan or by happenstance? Uh, how is it being used to provide uh, liquidity for various social, military, and, and clandestine actions? In well, bingo. So the uh, financial markets in New York began to freeze in uh, September of 2019 in the same way that they were freezing in the buildup to what became, you know, the bailouts in 2008. And uh, so uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, which, you know, I'm putting in question, let's ask lots of questions about the role of the Federal Reserve and BlackRock and all of this. They injected $9 trillion to try to keep that market liquid. And they're still injecting money into the repo market. And we don't know exactly who, who ends up with that, that, that money. Because they, they don't, they're, not, uh, they're not transparent. The Federal Reserve or the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York is not a transparent agency. So, you know, we can already trace, say, about 16 trillion that have gone into Wall Street, not onto Main Street. And, uh, but we don't know. This, this could be already much beyond that because there's no real um, system to monitor it. It's, it's a secret agency. It, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it, it's 
to be contrasted with the Bank of Canada, I'll just finish on this note, where government created a bank that could create money to be lent out to build up the country. That's what happened in Canada between 1938 and 1974. We only had $20 billion debt after that long period, after World War II, after uh, building up you know, the Trans-Canada Highway, the St. Lawrence Seaway. Uh, then Pierre Trudeau in 1974 was pulled into the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. Now our national debt is $700 billion. Uh, and uh, so why not go back to the system that we had? Why doesn't the world go back to creating, using our sovereign legislatures to create our own money to cut the middlemen out of the action and uh, the private bankers out of the action? And, you know, we've experienced the benefits of that in Canada. Justin Trudeau himself owes us as an explanation. Why aren't we just getting our money from uh, the Bank of Canada, creating it ourselves, as we have the power to do. Why is he supplicating himself to the Wall Street bankers and uh, making a fool of himself? And you know, just Canada doesn't look good in the international community with such a kind of um, Bill Gates loving, uh, trusting, naive, ill-educated man. He doesn't show much sign of having much education. That was Professor Anthony Hall, Editor-in-Chief of the American Herald Tribune and Professor Emeritus of Globalization Studies and Liberal Education at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. more background on the geopolitical implications of 9-11 today, I got hold of Graham McQueen. He is the former director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University in Canada. He was an organizer of the Toronto hearings on 9-11, a member of the Consensus 9-11 panel, and is a former co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. I asked him to elaborate, given that the channel has shifted away from terrorism, now that it's no longer frontline news. Well, let me first say something about the war on terror. I don't think it's over. I think it's too useful to a number of states, including especially the U.S. and Israel. Remember that the war on terror began around 1979 and was prominent in the Reagan era. And at that point, terrorism was targeted, so-called terrorism, all kinds of social groups, but they were said to have a sponsor, which was the Soviet Union. So you managed to promote the Cold War as well as the War on Terror. So we shouldn't see these as necessarily competing. They often overlap. With 9-11, you're right, we had a new phase. And Bush pretty much announced that um, Soviet Union is no longer our enemy. It's struggling toward democracy <laughs> and will join us and we'll all gang together to go after who? Well, you know, sure, Al-Qaeda, terrorists, blah, 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 but those aren't their real concern. We all know that. So they tied these to states that they wanted to target. And they said, just as they had said before, look, there are evil states that are sponsoring these terrorists. In this case, it was the so-called axis of evil. So you targeted Iraq and Iran and Syria and so on. And they happened to be major uh, 
rivals of Israel, and that's part of the reason they were targeted. But they were also sitting on a lot of oil, and that's a good reason for the U.S. to want to control that region. So throughout this, we, we shouldn't get distracted by the terrorism narrative. It's very important because groups rising up here and there may easily be demonized that way and wiped out. But the, the attempt is usually to tie them to states and therefore to justify good old-fashioned invasion and destruction of states. So that was done right after 9-11. Afghanistan was demonized and invaded. Iraq was demonized and invaded. And we shouldn't forget that there was a strong effort in the fall of 2001 to tie Iraq to uh, both 9-11 and especially the anthrax attacks that came after. Now, uh, that, that worked very well for, fairly well for them for a number of years. You're asking whether things have changed now. I think so. I think we have uh, the U.S. in a situation where they can't ignore uh, China and Russia. They were hoping Russia would quietly die, and it didn't. Um, and China is, of course, a major economic rival. So how can we demonize those states and how can we connect that to the war on terror? That's what I think the challenge is going to be for the U.S. and, and, and its allies in the coming region, uh, coming um, era. And we've seen hints of it already. So, for example, when we hear that um, Russian sponsored groups in Ukraine shot down a Malaysian plane, then we get everything. We get we get a terrible, violent terrorist act, and it's somehow behind it lurks Russia. And I, I'm so I'm worried about the double perpetrator hypothesis, the state sponsor and the proxy terrorist group. I'm I'm worried about that being used to foment new wars. Um, whether they be limited drone strike kinds of wars or whether they be full-on invasions. So we have to keep our eyes open because, of course, sometimes there are real terrorists and sometimes, uh, you know, other states do do evil things. But the fact is, as we've seen, there's uh, an extraordinary amount of deception, huge number of false flag attacks. So we have to keep our eyes open and we have to keep looking at the evidence to sort all this out. So, in a sense, you are saying we've got to be wary of the fact that the, 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 that the same position that Osama bin Laden was in is now going to be occupied by uh, Russia, but just in a different uh, field. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, yes, except I would say uh, not. Russia doesn't replace al-Qaeda or bin Laden. Okay. Russia replaces perhaps Iraq, the, the evil middle size rogue states that we heard about for a long time. And you're right, there's a Putin narrative. Everyone's supposed to hate Putin. Even U.S. liberals and even U.S. so-called leftists have this evil Putin narrative. I don't believe it. I think the guy has largely been cautious. And, um, you know, he, has, he knows the provocation game. He knows they're trying to provoke him, just like they're trying to provoke China. They've tried to provoke North Korea. They've provoked Syria repeatedly, and they, but they understand that game, and so they usually don't rise to the bait, and we shouldn't rise to it either. Graham McQueen recently co-authored an article for Global Research, which reported that on the day the World Trade Center came down, 36 reporters commented on there being explosions and not fire-induced collapses, 
which became the official narrative, I asked him to expand on the significance of that fact. Yes. Well, first of all, 9-11 remains an important event. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Every time the U.S. seems to lose its direction, they can refer to 9-11 and the need to have a huge military and the need to invade here and there and everywhere. <clears throat> it's by no means in the past. It's our present. Secondly, um, you have to know that the official story, the state narrative in the U.S. and in almost every state in the world, uh, the narrative, the story of what happened on 9-11 was that these planes hit the buildings and that's why the buildings came down. That somehow two planes hitting two buildings destroyed the entire seven-building World Trade Complex. This is, on the face of it, rather odd. When you look into it further, you find all these witnesses who said, well, there was a huge explosion just as the building started to come down. And they say that about building uh, one and building two and some witnesses about building seven. Now, why would they say that? If you've read the official stories of these buildings and their demise, whether it's in the 9-11 Commission report or the much more detailed accounts by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, there is no room for explosions at that stage of the day. Uh, there are explosions when the uh, planes first hit the buildings. But when the buildings come down, the jet fuel is, is burnt off. There is no reason for a major explosion of the kind that would destroy such enormous buildings. Therefore, when you get eyewitnesses saying there was an enormous explosion and then the buildings were pulverized in front of my eyes, this suggests that the official narrative is wrong and that investigators, including the FBI, should have said, what the hell is going on? Let's interview these people. Let's find out what they saw, what they heard. Now, I first got interested in this 15 years ago and wrote an article about the fire department of New York and the fact that 118 uh, members of the fire department heard or saw or felt explosions at that time. And what this new article is, is Ted Walter and, and me getting together and looking at journalists. Um, what they saw and what they reported right there on the scene on the day of 9-11. I have to thank Ted for that piece of work for a number of reasons, one of which is I felt a little bit lost by that point in terms of gathering eyewitness reports and his enthusiasm for going through all this video footage, TV footage, <clears throat> uh, helped inspire me to uh, to assist him in this new effort. Now, why is it important? It's important because the firefighters, when they were interviewed, were looking back on what they had experienced a few weeks or a few months previous. And we know that memory can sometimes distort. But these media people were right on the scene on 9-11 itself, and in some cases reporting what they saw as they saw it. You can't talk about the distortions of memory. And here we have all these witnesses, including 21 that personally uh, directly perceived explosions, which was about 84% of the direct witnesses we found. The number who, who talked about you know, the building collapsing from plane impact was much smaller 
than those who talked about explosions. So what does this mean? It means that the main narrative of those on the scene on 9-11 was that these buildings had somehow been blown up, that explosions had contributed in a major way to their demise. And this is not the same as the official narrative. It is a complete contradiction of the official narrative. Now you'll, and this is important. So you'll find people who come along and say that those of us who say the towers and building seven were blown up are revisionists. We're Johnny come lately's. We come tagging along saying instead of the obvious that the planes knocked down the buildings, that a more exotic interpretation is necessary, that, you know, explosives were placed in the building. No, we know that now to be wrong. We know that the revisionist theory is the official theory that planes knocked down the buildings, that the dominant explanation on the scene, on the day, was quite different. It was the one that, that I've been trying to talk about and get people to see, as well as many other people for the last 15 years. These buildings were pre-wired with explosives, and they were brought down by insiders on 9-11. And that is still important because because it's true, the whole global war on terror that began in 9-11, that phase of it, is a fraud. I then questioned the possibility that terms like conspiracy theorist might have successfully destroyed any attempts at refuting the official story even before the facts are heard. My advice is <clears throat> I have a lot of academic friends who write long articles and PhD theses and books on conspiracy theory to try and answer this kind of objection. And I, uh, I admire them for their patience. I think that has to be done inside the university. University is an important arena of struggle and you need to answer, <clears throat> you need to answer people in, in that kind of detail. I personally don't have the patience for it. And most of the people I argue with these days about 9-11 are not academics anyway. They're ordinary folks and going into a long explanation is not a very good answer. I find a brief answer is better. Um, you chuckle. Uh, you say that name-calling isn't really a very fruitful way of having a dialogue, um, that you're not going to call them uh, you know, true believers and so on, and you hope they won't dismiss you as a conspiracy theorist, that let's get to the evidence. Let's start talking about the evidence. And most people, most of the time, you know, you can dismiss that name-calling pretty quickly that way. Um, because it's it's very shallow. It's silly. I mean, of course, there are conspiracies in the world. Um, and uh, I'm sure there are also paranoid people, but that's neither here nor there. What we're interested in is following following the evidence and um, and not allowing what uh, I think it's Daniel Goleman called amygdala hijack, uh, which is the main hijacking that happened on 9-11. That's when, you know, you're so shocked and scared that um, the primitive part of your brain takes over, Fri uh, fight, flight, or freezing in place, and you can't use your the higher functions of your brain. And so you, you start going, oh, my God, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. And anybody who questions that, you just can't, you can't do that. And believe me, academics, I don't care whether you've got a PhD or not, you can, you're still subject to amygdala hij hijack. Uh, and your amygdala doesn't have a PhD. It never does. It's, it just doesn't think that way. 
And so until those people can be brought very gently out of their state of um, shock and fear and so on, uh, they won't they won't be able to rationally dialogue with you. So it, it usually doesn't help to attack them. It usually uh, helps to uh, smile and start a somewhat more gentle conversation. We just heard from Graham McQueen, Director of Peace Studies at McMaster University and a high-profile investigator of 9-11. To bring us the latest from the field of 9-11 activism, I was joined recently by Richard Gage. Richard Gage AIA is a 30-year San Francisco Bay Area architect and member of the American Institute of Architects. He's the founding member of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. He's been a lead organizer, educating the public on 9-11 and mobilizing efforts to bring justice and accountability to that horrific event. We started with a discussion of a groundbreaking study into what caused the collapse of World Trade Center 7. Yes, Professor Hulsey and his team of PhD researchers embarked on this four years ago. This is a four-year study from the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, and it's about Building 7, the third worst structural failure in modern history, and yet the one that most architects and engineers know nothing about whatsoever. And it's, it's just startling how people, uh, this should be the most studying, the most studied building failure, you know, in, in history, really. Um, so here he was concerned that here's a building that collapsed ostensibly due to fire, but fires never brought down a skyscraper as in history, as we've seen. Uh, so before 9-11, so this is, uh, an obvious uh, point for him, he thought, as he got into this, we got to find out what brought this building down. Was it fire? If so, we got to remodel all these other buildings, uh, hundreds of them around the world. So uh, his, but as he got into it, he found that NIST uh, completely um, made erroneous assumptions, all kinds of erroneous assumptions in their collapse initiation theory. Um, which we go into in our webinar, 9-11, An Architect's Guide, a three-part series. World Trade Center Building 7 is the first part. And so he first uh, does analysis with their assumptions, their erroneous assumptions. The most conservative test case he could do, and he finds that the building wouldn't even collapse. Uh, not only did it not collapse, uh, in order to force it to collapse, they actually remove these three columns, 79, 80, and 81, and then the building would begin to tip over. And those are the three columns that NIST said uh, collapsed as a result of their study. Of course, they had to remove 400 structural steel connections every second in this building in order to get it to collapse. And even then, it looks nothing like the actual collapse as we see in the video on 9-11. So Professor Halsey says, huh, that's interesting. They then go, well, what do we have to do to make it collapse as we see in the videos? Well, he had to remove all 80 columns at once and st starting with the interior and then going to the exterior within a second of each other or so. And then, uh, by God, the building falls exactly 
like the building uh, video show, and anybody can look this up in YouTube, by the way, just look up Building 7 Collapse. And it, exactly like the old hotels in Las Vegas, uh, straight down uniformly, symmetrically into its own footprint in under seven seconds and at free fall acceleration as fast as a bowling ball falling off the top of this building. So here's 135 pages of detailed finite element analysis to back up these final conclusions of his. And it completely pulls the rug out from underneath the NIST report. So we've sent 75,000 postcards to engineers all around the country and 400 complete copies of the study. And uh, we're, we're really trying to make a fuss, Michael. We, we, need, uh, we need the world to know about this, that it's not just 3,000 architecture engineers signed on to our petition demanding a new investigation, uh, but uh, thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of engineers and architects out there we're trying to reach. Um, there's, uh, there's two major challenges. There's the lawsuit against the FBI for failure to disclose evidence in connection with 9-11 and providing of evidence of controlled demolitions of the Trade Center Tower before a grand jury. Uh, can you give us a, a, a bit of an update of uh, where things are apply right now? Yes, 60 exhibits of this evidence that's been uh, collected and, and collated and put into a package really by the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has been submitted to the Attorney General in Manhattan uh, Federal Court for to be given to a special grand jury. And we have now sued them with the mandamus action, forcing them to disclose what efforts have been made toward that end. Um, so that's pending in, in court. And then with the FBI, we've sued them because they were res responsible to uh, tell Congress about all the evidence that they've collected and uh, what it amounted to. Well, we've given them our evidence over the years and they've let us know because they actually complimented us saying that our research was backed by thorough analysis, um, which is very, very nice from the assistant chief uh, uh, of counterterrorism, Michael Heimbach. But uh, we don't have that evidence being forwarded to Congress as was required to them in the 2015 9-11 Commission review. And so uh, we've sued them uh, and uh, they challenged us and um, we have answered that challenge and we expect some results um, coming up here before the end of the year. Okay. Um... Now, there's also the, uh, the Bobby McIlvain Act. It's named after Bobby McIlvain. Uh, his father's uh, uh, championing it. It's uh, to get a, uh, opening the investigation into 9-11 again. What's your read on where the, the politicians are, uh, on what politicians are on board, or how, 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 how is that the lobbying going for you? Well, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, apparently, um, we've spoken with dozens and dozens of staffers of congress congressmen and women, and, and um, in these appointments, um, they're always very impressed. Well, almost always, and uh, some of them are downright indignant. How could you even suggest such a thing that 
this might be a controlled demolition. Uh, that would involve a conspiracy. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, all of this stuff. Um, well, really, we can't, a lot of us can't afford, and a lot of them, our own representatives, to, to take, to look at the evidence seriously because it forces us into a position of having to challenge everything we've heard and seen and, and um, thought to be true about 9-11. And, and uh, Building 7 is the start of that. And the Twin Towers just take you nose deep, uh, neck deep into, into the muck. And, and, and the muck is deeply disturbing because it pulls the rug out from underneath our faith in our government. Um, and um, uh, it, is, it is quite a challenge to those of us who haven't already taken, well, we know, um, but for those who you know, haven't got their feet wet yet in, in some of the ongoing conspiracies uh, such as the current one we find ourselves in um, with uh, COVID-19, you know, we're not naive to the capabilities of our government lying to us. And we've done our homework, um, but that's not our issue. Uh, but for those who, who started to do their homework there, I encourage people to go to 9-11 because, uh, and in this country, we have the Bobby McElvain Act, which is pre-written. All it takes is... Uh, a, 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 a courageous congressman or woman to introduce it. And it, call, it, it lays out the outline for a new investigation into the destruction of these three towers, which is how Bobby McElvain was killed in the North Tower. Uh, explosions is blown to small pieces like thousands of other people. Okay. In fact, yeah, I wanted to uh, just, I guess we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, coming up this weekend is uh, Justice Rising, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's an upcoming conference which involves participants from all over in three days. Could you give us a breakdown of, of some of the key speakers and the material that you'll be presenting? Yeah, this is an online virtual conference. It's free. So we encourage people to go to our website to watch it on September 11th, 12th, and 13th. Uh, that website is ae911truth.org, and it begins at 6 p.m. Eastern on Friday, where we'll talk about our own history, which we've only touched on here, uh, the long road to justice. And then uh, we bring in the in inquest of uh, uh, a new inquest attempt by Matt Campbell, to, whose, whose uh, brother was also murdered in the North Tower in that controlled demolition. And uh, they've only found small pieces of, of his body. And so it's tailor-made, this particular legal opportunity uh, to get our evidence into a court system outside the U.S. for the first time. And all we have to do is show that an inquest might yield a different result. And boom, we've got it. But it's a very expensive process. We hired the best barrister in London, uh, and, and uh, that is Nick Stanage. And uh, we've, we've got him started, but he's going to have to finish the work. It's $100,000 at $500 an hour uh, of legal work for, these, for this firm. 
Um, and he's success, been successful fighting the government for quite a while. So it's, it's a really wonderful opportunity for us. So I encourage people to support us in that effort. But then we go on to the request for correction, which we talked about earlier with Ted Walter, Tony Zambodi, Mick Harrison. And then we turn it over to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, who will be talking and updating everybody on the legal efforts, including the effort uh, to expose the, 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 the devious deception of the 9-11 anthrax attacks, which were used, of course, to manipulate congressmen into um, uh, letting the Patriot Act go through. Uh, that's who was targeted there. But then um, on, on Science Saturday, we call it, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, we have Dylan Avery, who's made a new film. Of course, he was the director of the highly successful uh, Loose Change 9-11 uh, franchise, which uh, has been seen 100 million times mostly for free on YouTube. And um, he, our guest, Leroy Halsey, will talk about the backstory uh, behind the, the finite element analysis that we were talking about earlier. Well, Dylan Avery has made a film about it. It's called Seven. So uh, that's what the first hour on Science Saturday is. The second hour is about the global failures of World Trade Center Seven, which uh, Roland Engel, structural engineer, will talk about and myself on the Twin Towers. Then uh, I'm so excited to have the three pioneers of the 9-11 Truth Movement back all on one platform. David Ray Griffin, who's written 12 books on 9-11 Truth now. Uh, Stephen Jones, who pioneered the extreme temperatures documented that he documented in the World Trade Center um, dust. And Niels Harrett, who documented the nanothermite, a very powerful hour there for us and then we go to sunday where we bring daniela ganzer from switzerland uh, false flags and wars of terror as a result of 9 11 and john whitehead of the rutherford institute the advancing police state as a result of 9 11 and then uh, james corbett on uh, censorship his title talk is titled library the library of alexandria is on fire. And of course, this was the first mass censorship event um, in, in, in history that we're aware of. Uh, so this is going to be an awesome opportunity. I encourage everybody to come to our website to watch it, ae911truth.org. We've been joined by Richard Gage, AIA. He is the founding member of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Look up the work of his organization by going to the site ae911truth.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.